Welcome back to another episode of In Enemy Territory. We've got a great one for you today. Today on the calendar is March 22nd. Got a great lineup of really interesting stuff happened on this day in sports history. And again, in the month of March, last week's we covered March 2nd on the calendar. This week, March 22nd. Let's go. In 1994, the two-point conversion was instituted in the NFL. That was the first scoring change in 75 years. And on this day in 2011, the replay review became subject to the referees as a new rule change in the NFL. And given the correlation of this day to NFL rule changes taking place, I wanted to just look over a list I found. Um that is a list of the NFL rule changes that have happened from 1994 through 2018. I don't know if it's the most updated of lists as there's been two full seasons since this list was put out, but this is the list I came up with. So that's what we'll cover. Again, 1994, the two-point conversion was instituted. It's a big play that can change the course of a game, change the course of a season. Being able to go for two, making a eight-point game still a one-possession game. And in 2011, replay review, subject to referees. If the referees need to review something, they can make that call. I'm not 100% sure what the parameters of that are um, 10 years later, but in 2011, that was instituted. So let's look at this list. Let's see. We've got about 10, 11 rule changes. Starting in 1999, coaches are allowed two changes per two ta- two challenges per half, losing a timeout for any unsuccessful challenge. That's a rule that relatively seems the same um, to this day. Challenges also major uh, have major swings in a game, momentum-wise. They can change, you know, an incorrect call to a correct call. They could reverse something that was missed to be implemented you know a foot actually not being down not being a catch on the sideline um a turnover that wasn't called can be challenged and and then found out um and you know how it goes in the nfl challenges are typically inbounds slash out of bounds or a turnover call that was missed and, or a completion. Those are typically the challenges we see. Um, if you challenge and the, the call is upheld, the team that challenges loses a timeout and they only have one challenge left. And if they're out of timeouts, they cannot call the challenge. Cannot throw the red flag. Okay, one year later, in 2000, team touchdown celebrations were outlawed. And this is a rule that stood till um 2017 scrolling down this list it lasted for 17 years that excessive celebration was a penalty enforced on the following kickoff um and i'm not 100 percent sure what went into making that rule i don't know if if the celebrations were just getting super excessive or if people were just against players and teams and fan bases having fun and enjoying life but I don't see what the harm could be in celebrating a touchdown, something you work your entire life. There's 
only a handful of people in the entire world can claim that they've scored an NFL touchdown. You know, let's say 100 players score a touchdown every year or or 200. Uh, you know, out of the 7 billion people in the world, I would be excited. I'm, I'm excited when I score an adult league hockey goal. So score a touchdown in the biggest stage in the world and to be told all you can do is high-five your teammate, like, that must have sucked. I know the most infamous uh, touchdown celebration that I could think of was actually inappropriate. Randy Moss, 2004, playoffs, Vikings-Packers, and he pretended to moon the crowd. He pretended to pull down his pants. He didn't even pull them down, but a bit vulgar. I understand why he got flagged, but... I'm happy that players can express themselves these days on the field. It does get a little excessive at times, but hell, let them do what they want. As long as no one gets hurt in the process of celebrating, no harm, no foul, and move on from it. Okay, 2004. Illegal contact is reinforced more aggressively. I th- I think that might mean in regard to the quarterback. Um, I didn't look further into that rule. Uh, 2005, the horse collar tackle is forbidden. I fully understand that one. It's a very dangerous play when a player gets tackled, when the tackler gets his hand inside of the collar and, or, you know, the shoulder pads, he gets it in and he yanks them down from his shoulders. It could be very dangerous. You could get injured, um, or severely injured. And it's an automatic unsportsmanlike 15 yard penalty and a first down. 2011. So the, here we have a six-year gap till the next rule change came in. A reviews official would review all scoring plays. So prior to this, um, any touchdown that happened, any turnover, I don't know if this is included the turnovers, but any touchdown, if you thought it was not a touchdown, you would have to challenge and say it's not or any, yeah. If the ruling on the field is a touchdown, it's a touchdown. Now, every scoring play, no matter what, they quickly check upstairs, make sure it was all good. No one has to burn a challenge. You need to get the key plays in the game right. The touchdown, the interception, the fumble, those need to be called properly no matter what. Within the back and forth of the game, if something gets missed, that's on the coaches to make sure that they are there with the flag and they have their eyes open. But something like a touchdown, the, um, the entire crew, everyone... The league, the rules, touchdowns are not going to be missed. 2011, the same year, kickoffs are moved from the 30-yard line up to the 35-yard line. Um, An extra five yards deeper, and I think that the mentality behind that was more touchbacks, fewer kick returns, which on the one hand I understand, you know, a lot of injuries happen on the kickoff and the return. But, like, are they dangerous or are they not? Like, are you going to have them or are you not going to have them? Like, if you're going to have them, just have them. If you're not, you don't. But, like, why make them fewer? Like, I guess that their, their their rationality was if it happens fewer, there's less likely to be an injury. I mean, the sport of football is high contact at high speed. Injuries are going to happen. So it's not like you can just eliminate plays that are going to cause injuries. So if you just minimize the kickoffs, which are – most of the time, pretty inconsequential. So I get it. Um, and to this day, they still kick it from the 35, unless a penalty or whatnot. Um, 
and yeah, we rarely see kick returns these days. I I definitely feel that growing up, you know, in the early two thousands, um, the beginning of my football fandom career, uh, guys like Devin Hester and Leon Washington, and some, I forget that guy who was on the Bills, maybe Lee Evans. They they had a guy who who used to bring them back to the house, not so infrequently. But anyways, um, I. I, I rarely see it happen. Maybe punts a little more often, but kickoffs, very rare. And I definitely think that the 35-yard line kickoff has a big part of that. The next year, 2012, huge, huge rule change, which has definitely had maybe one of the most biggest impacts of this entire list. The current overtime rules were introduced. And that is that both teams get the chance to score unless the first team scores a touchdown or or the defense, you know, scores a safety on, on that first drive. It's over. But the team that receives the ball first, if they don't score a touchdown, the other team gets a chance. Um, <clears throat> and that's pretty big. You know, back in the day, you get the ball first, you kick a field goal, it's over. And... I'm pretty sure that the statistics show that whoever got the ball first had like a ridiculous percentage of winning, like upper 60s, maybe even into the 70s. So this definitely puts the pressure on the team that gets the ball first to either take it to the house to punch it in. Um, definitely don't want to miss a field goal and you don't want to turn it over. I mean, obviously, in overtime, you never wanted to do any of those things, but the pressure is even higher um, because it's a mental game. You know, you can't just kick a field goal. I mean, look, you kick a field goal, all you need to do is stop the other team from scoring a touchdown, and you you know you'll, at the worst, get the ball back. You stop them from scoring a three-pointer, you win the game. So... um I definitely want to look deeper into this and see kind of in the last nine seasons, how often has it been that the team that the team that got the ball first kicks a field goal? And of those games, has anyone ever kicked a field goal? Has anyone scored in overtime and lost? Scored first in overtime and lost. Um, if you're listening, you could actually look it up. Send a message to the show. I will shout you out in the next episode. Um, but in the meantime, maybe I'll go look it up myself because I don't trust you guys yet with such important information. Um, okay, 2013, the tuck rule is abolished. Tuck rule, classic, Tom Brady back in the day in the playoffs against the Raiders. They called it an incomplete because his arm was going forward in motion and wasn't a fumble, blah, blah, blah. Then they took it away, and you actually have to throw the ball instead of, like, intention to throw the ball now. It makes a lot more sense. Um, but luckily, the rule stood long enough for Tom Brady to win three Super Bowls. I'm kidding. Um, 2015, extra point attempts are moved from the two-yard line to the 15-yard line, including the, the two-point conversion and everything. Um, that's pretty cool, I guess. You know, the extra point used to be a 19-yard try. Now it's a 32-yard field goal attempt. It's... You know, they miss it. The kickers have got to be on their game. You know, no more freebies. The extra point percentage has definitely gone down. And it has caused teams to think about going for two a little more frequently just because the one point isn't guaranteed. And, you know, if you could put up eight points and maximize that that scoring on, on, a, on a touchdown play, 
you know, why not? And I think the Steelers actually lead the league almost every year in percentage, um, eight uh, two-point conversion per touchdown tries. Not necessarily conversion rate, but uh, the amount that they go for it. 2017, the regular season overtime is shortened from 15 to 10 minutes. Because of this, we have seen a flux, an influx of tie games. Um, but at the end of the day, I guess it makes sense, you know, just just get the game over with. Like at this point, you've played 60 minutes of football. Still no one's won. And after 10 minutes of overtime, no one has taken a lead, you know, I don't think it's happened too often that both teams have scored a field goal. So basically at this point you're saying no one's been able to score and take and and win the game. How long are we going to let this go on? So if you if no one's going to go ahead and win the game, just call it a tie. We want to go home. You know what I'm saying? The TV, you know, the TV rights, they're they're they've got the next game lined up and we're waiting. Whatever it is, everyone's tired. Let's just go, let's just call it a game and go home, and that's fine. You know, five minutes would be too short. That's like one drive, but ten minutes. Typically, no one has the ball for ten minutes straight in overtime. Both teams have had a chance. Both teams probably have had two chances. Just call it a game. Twenty seventeen, the same year, the ball got moved from the twenty yard line to the twenty five yard line following a touchback, meaning on a kickoff or a punt, whatever it is, anytime a touchback incurs, truthfully. Uh, up until 2017, you get the ball on the 20. Actually, hold on. No, this is just on a kickoff. I believe on a punt, it still goes to the 20. On kickoffs specifically, um, the team gets to start at the 25-yard line. Twofold. First of all, makes the return also a little more, a little more obsolete because if you're catching the ball in the end zone, now you need to return it. 25 27 28 yards just to get to where if you kneel the ball you're automatically getting it there so you you're gonna kneel the ball unless you really see something out there that's like or if you feel like you need the potential huge return or like early in the game tie game or whatever it is you're not desperate unless you unless you're catching the ball outside of the end zone if you catch it in the end zone you need to return it like 28 yards just to make up, you know, you're likely going to get tackled between the 15 and 20, and then you could have had that extra five yards. So I think the whole process of putting this rule into play was to also uh, make kickoff returns a little less frequent, um, especially with the kickers moving up. So, um, And yeah. It uh, boosts scoring up a little bit, you know, from taking from kneeling the ball and calling it a touchback. You start from the 25. You only need to go 75 yards instead of 80. You only have about 50, 40 yards that you need to gain to get into long field goal range. So scoring goes up. Everyone's happy when scoring goes up. And 2017, the third rule change, which we mentioned earlier, the celebrations following a score were re-allowed and everyone celebrated that with a good old football spike into the ground. And 2018, to round out the list, the catch rule is modified, so it's written down in a clear three-step process in order to be considered a catch. The receiver, the whoever it is catching the ball, must secure control of the ball prior to the ball touching the ground. That's 
basically the, de- the definition of a catch. But also, touch the ground inbounds with both feet or with any part of the body other than the hands. An elbow, a butt, a knee, um, your head even, I believe, is considered um, being down. Anything other than the hand. The hand doesn't count. And thirdly, perform a football act or maintain control of the ball long enough to do so. Fall to the ground while still holding it. Or, you know, take a step. Whatever it is, it can't just be boom, boom, ball out. Wasn't long enough. Um, The biggest impact that I can remember of a call being reversed, and at first it was called a catch. When they reviewed it and followed this rubric, it was called incomplete and had a huge impact on the Steelers-Patriots game. I believe this was the first year of the rule. 2018, Jesse James, touchdown, turned out as he was reaching the ball forward in one fluid motion over the goal line. The ball came loose, not a touchdown. The next play, Ben Roethlisberger throws an interception. Steelers do not have the comeback, and this rule stole that from us. So anyways, those are the new rules in the last... 20 in that 24 25 year period um we could do a look into what has been brought up in the past couple years and maybe we could talk about that in a later episode i want to take a minute to talk about um speaking of rule changes there's three things that to me need to be changed in sports not just football not football at all actually but in sports first of all And this one kills me. The strike zone needs to be automated already. How can you have an impartial strike zone where one umpire calls it this way and one umpire calls it that way? It doesn't make sense. The batter needs to, like, know the umpire. The the pitcher has a strike zone that they need to hit. It's very clear. You can even see it on TV nowadays. They have it outlined in a box. The, The ball needs to hit at least the white line, if not inside of it and it's a strike anything outside of that is a ball a ref an umpire excuse me a home plate umpire can you know can can be object can be cannot be objective he's calling it how he sees it and his opinion and as soon as it's based on an opinion that gives room for fluctuation and a strike should be a strike it's the most important call it happens you know, there's 200 pitches thrown in a game. They all need to be called correctly. You'll have pitcher, you'll have batters swinging at bad pitches because, oh, the umpire called this a strike last time. I understand it's part of the game, and it's always been part of the game, but at the end of the day, that is the most important call on the field, and everything else is reviewable. You know, everything nowadays you can challenge, you can check who did he beat, beat out the throw at first base, did the ball hit above the O-line, is it a home run, is it a foul ball, whatever. The strike is the most important part of the game. You train your whole life to throw a strike. You need it to be called. And I'm sure with technology these days, they probably already have something that, like as we see on TV, they it has it. So they need to be able to relay that to be a strike. And maybe, you know, some kind of way where the ref is just getting a signal that's it's telling him ball or strike, whatever it is. But the ref... The, uh, the home plate umpire needs to go, you know. At that point, like, you probably could even have some kind of, you know, radar or technology to 
just to call to call outs and to call everything. I know that uh, we're probably headed that way, but for me, at least right now, I need to see the strike zone automated. It's getting ridiculous. Um, talking about fluctuation per umpire, my second thing that bothers me is it's not really a rule change, but in football, how long is the football field? 100 yards. In hockey, how many feet is the rink? I think it's 200 from red line to red line. And then I think they said there's some rinks like Detroit or, or Chicago or whatever that has a little bit, a couple more inches behind the net. Okay, that's fine. That's not a big deal. But from red line to red line, each hockey net, everything is uniform. They're all the same size. Basketball, every hoop is 10 feet. Every court is 90 feet, whatever it is. Why is it in baseball? Every stadium has different dimensions. Blows my mind that they are not uniformed. I understand the, you know, the air is different in Denver than here, but so what? So what? It's it's ridiculous. They should all have the same dimensions. They should all have the same size wall. It's it's a sport and it shouldn't be changing because you're in a different city. Like I understand the culture and the history, that's fine, but like at the end of the day, Obviously, it's it probably isn't quite as big of a deal as the strike zone, but like, I feel like it should just they should all be the same. Like, what happens? What? How would it, you wouldn't be able to have football if you came to Heinz Field and it was 105 yards, and you went to Green Bay and you went to Lambeau Field and it was 95 yards, or and you went to you know Soldier Field and it was 111 yards. Like, it's it's ridiculous. I don't understand why it is. I maybe I understand why it was this way, but it's it's just kind of weird. It's kind of weird that they're all different. I'm not upset about it, but it's weird, and someone had to mention it. Okay, let's just take a deep breath, move forward, talk about the birthdays of the day, March 22nd on the calendar, 1952. Bob Costas, famous TV personality. He was with NBC forever. If you ever watched the Olympics, Bob Costas was the guy. If you ever watch NBC Sports, whatever, Bob Costas, I think he retired just last year or two years ago, whatever it was, a legendary TV sportscaster, newscaster, whatever you want to call him, born on this day, 1952, 1977, Joey Porter, an all-time Steelers, great, 98 career sacks, he was a huge part of the 05-06 Steelers Super Bowl team, Joey Porter, um, Born on this day, happy birthday. 1979, two years later, Juan Uribe, two-time World Series champion. He played with the Rockies, the White Sox, the Giants, Dodgers, Mets, Braves, and Indians. He won with the White Sox, and um, I believe, looking at the, uh, and with the Giants, correct. White Sox in 05, Giants in 2010. Juan Uribe, a shortstop, um, a decent player back in the day. 1972, Sean Bradley, former tall man in the NBA, he measured in at seven foot six. Happy birthday to him. He actually was involved in a car crash that left him paralyzed last year, tragically. Um, so we wish him the best. If he's listening, Sean, feel better. Um, very sad to hear of that news. 1989, JJ Watt, three time defensive player of the year, known to be one of the greatest defensive players in NFL history, surely a Hall of Famer. He just joined the Arizona Cardinals on the offseason, as well as his boy DeAndre Hopkins from the year before, um, and our boy James Conner from Pittsburgh. So 
with Kyler Murray kind of maturing, defense has held its own in a, in a tough NFC West. Um, if you listen to my other podcast, MVP Watch, my preseason preview was that the Arizona Cardinals would actually win that division, do pretty well. Um, and I think that J.J. Watt is going to have a huge bounce back year, assuming he can be healthy, stay healthy, and the Cardinals definitely look hot entering the year. We just had Thursday Night Football last night. The season has started. Very exciting. Um, so happy birthday to these gentlemen. Um, and now just to round out the calendar with the with a list of highlights that have happened on this day. Uh, March 22nd, 1979, so the day Juan Uribe was born. The WHA voted in four teams into the NHL. The merger it was voted through. Four teams, the um, the Hartford Whalers, which is now the Carolina Hurricanes, who have, who have won a Stanley Cup. The Winnipeg Jets become the Arizona Coyotes. They've never sniffed the Stanley Cup. The Oilers, we know what they've done, and we know what they haven't done since. Um, and the Quebec Nordiques, who became the Avalanche. So of all those teams, the Oilers are the only team that are still who they were back then. Um, but that has been f- some of the biggest franchises in the league since that merger. You know, the uh, Oilers winning, I think, five championships in that time. The Avalanche won a couple. Canes won once. Coyotes are falling apart as we speak and probably not even going to be there too many more years. But um, they've had some some all-time greats. Dale Howarchuk, Jeremy Roenick, Shane Doan. Um, probably no one else, but... Um, yeah, big day for the NHL on that day. Ten years later, 1989, in the NHL, Clint Malarchuk gets kicked in the neck. We've talked about the injury briefly in a different episode, our February 10th episode from Season 1. Um, thank God he's all right. Thank God he survived because, like I said before, I don't know how the hockey world would be able to get past one of our own dying um n- not just dying obviously NHL players have died um in sad forms and one another but to die from a directly linked injury such as kicked in the neck with the sh- with the skate blade um i can't think of something worse that could happen to a game than a player dying from the game so glad he was okay um he dealt with some some trauma uh, post-traumatic stress um, due to the injury, but he's written a book since, and he's and he's doing really well from what I have seen online. So it's good to know. Um, 1991, two years later, Wayne Gretzky, bu- Wayne Gretzky buys the Honus Wagner card. It's called like the SPO1 or whatever. I for sure got it wrong. It just sold again recently, actually, but um, 30 years ago, Wayne Gretzky bought it almost half a million dollars. He sold it eventually for over a million dollars. Um, this is, this card is, it's, if you if you know anything about sports cards or, or not even, um, when they talk about the Honus Wagner card, it was that one. I just forgot to write down what it's called. It's called like the SP 10 or whatever. Um, one of the first baseball cards that ever was, was made. 2000, March 22nd, the year 2000, Pat Verbeek scores his 500th career goal. 
And the thing about Pat Verbeek, which I'm sure he hates to hear, but it's got to be said, he is on the list of 1,000-point players not in the Hall of Fame. So a guy scored a lot, not in the Hall of Fame, for whatever reason, he just wasn't, uh, he didn't get it. He didn't get regarded as one to be immortalized, so he has the title of one of the highest scoring not in the Hall of Famers. And then in 2008, another big day in hockey, Joe Sackick scores his 1,000th career assist to be 11th at the time, 11th player to reach 1,000 apples. Um, fun fact, immediately after this game, his gloves got sent to the Hall of Fame. I wonder if they're still there on display. Um, and I really would love to get to the Hockey Hall of Fame. My brother's been. Um, not sure what the deal with traveling to Canada these days is, but I definitely would love to visit the Hockey Hall of Fame. I mean, obviously. Um, and when I do, I'll take a look and see if Sackick's gloves from his 1,000th assist are still there. And lastly, and I guess somewhat anticlimactically, um, given basketball is pretty far down the pecking order of this show and in my life, although it's it's starting to creep in on me. It's it's starting to creep up on me. I have definitely been becoming more of a basketball fan than I ever have at any point in my life. I've always been, you know, kind of LeBron James fan. Um, but living in Philly, like I think I've said, you know, the Sixers are really fun to watch. Joel Embiid is on another level, very exciting player, world talent. Um, definitely not at the point where I'm saying the Sixers are, are my team. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm from Pittsburgh. I have no, I have no right to say the Sixers are mine, but if I had to kind of root for a team to do well, I want to see them go deep. 